Good morning and welcome back to the book of James. Today we come to James 4, 13 through 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. I pray that the Lord will bless this study in his word. Into Thin Air by John Krakauer tells the story of an expedition to the top of Mount Everest in 1996. One of the people he talks about is a 46-year-old Japanese FedEx employee with a, with a passion for climbing. Yasuko Namba. She was an accomplished climber, having climbed seven of the highest mountains on earth. The only one she hadn't conquered was Everest. And Everest had become her all-consuming goal. Krakauer recalls, Yasuko was totally focused on getting the top. It was, it was almost as if she was in a trance. She pushed extremely hard, jostling her way past everyone to the front of the line. She wanted to get to the top of Mount Everest. And later that day, she accomplished that goal. On her descent, Yasuko and a number of other climbers were caught in a blinding blizzard. They huddled down as the, the bitter winds blew, but, but in her exhausted state, Yasuko froze to death. She, uh, having only brief hours ago, gained her greatest prize. She froze to death. But according to Krakauer, she had made a tragic mistake. Yasuko's fatal flaw was that she set the wrong goal. Yasuko's goal had been to get to the top of the mountain. But according to the author, this is a, a frequent and sometimes fatal mistake that climbers make. The goal of climbing should never be to get to the top of the summit. Successful climbers know that the goal is not to get to that pinnacle. It's to get back down the mountain. And tragically, this is exactly what Yusuko forgot. Against incredible odds, she made it to the top of the mountain. But she poured out all of her energy to get there. And when she did, she didn't have enough strength to get back down. Yusuko failed because she adopted the wrong goal. 
let me ask you, how do you look at your future? What is it that defines your future as a, a success or a failure? What are you expecting out of the years to come? And, and what strategies have you put in place to achieve it? James 4, 13 through 17 opens by reaching out and tapping many of his readers on the shoulder. He taps them on the shoulder and says, hey, listen up. I have something to say, and it's something that you need to hear. Are you listening? Well, he doesn't exactly put it that way, but that's his intent. Verse 13, he says, now listen, you who say to today or tomorrow we will go to this or, or that city and spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. James taps the shoulders of those who place their faith in, in future endeavors, in, in in future ambitions. He is pointedly addressing those who count on their perceived goals to provide what they want out of life, and he calls their aspirations and desires into question. Let me give you another word for what James is addressing here. Presumption. James is talking about presumption, blind presumption, selfish presumption. For these people, it was money, money, money. That was their goal. This is where they expected to go with their future and, and where they placed their faith. An extensive uh, study conducted by the Higher Learning Research Institute found that 85.8% of college freshmen say that their goal in life is to get rich. Now, that's 43% higher than the typical college freshman in 1967. That's quite a difference, isn't it? So yes, this is a question for us. James' question is a question for us. What is it you desire to accomplish in this life? I'm sure you aspire to something beyond where you are today. I'm, I'm sure this addresses most of us. Is James tapping you on the shoulder and saying, listen up, bub, or, or bubette, as the case may be? I've got something to say, and it's something you need to hear. James made this statement as if unfolding the dreams woven in our minds, the, the, the dreams we all conjure from time to time. Verse 13, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Specifically, James was writing to the scattered believers, Jewish believers, mind you, people who were industrious and inventive and driven, these were good people who loved the Lord. Events had scattered the Jews throughout the Roman world. And this was no less true of the church, basically Jewish at the time. It too had been scattered. 
Rome thought the church was just another sect within Judaism and, and treated its adherents accordingly. Home was behind in Israel. If they were to succeed in life, they had to be more industrious than, than most in the new cities they now inhabited. They had to find opportunity and seize it. They had to be versatile and inventive if they expected to have any kind of future at all for themselves or for their families. While the text talks of a, a business situation, it could just as easily refer to any future plans. You may aspire for a family and home. That may be your goal. Your hopes may be to have strong interpersonal relationships with friends. Your goal may be to excel at sports, at school, at, at the job, etc. The quest, the pursuit, could take any shape or any direction. James could be addressing any expectation that you have concerning tomorrow. What are your plans, your goals, your, your future expectations? Where are you investing yourself? This is the question that James is asking, that he's bringing us to you and me. That statement, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, assumes certain things. There are implicit expectations built in. Specifically, two basic assumptions are evident. First, there is the assumption that there will be a tomorrow. Notice a, a built-in optimism. So sure were these people of this, this basic assumption that they boasted in it. Verse 16. As it is, you boast and brag. We're going here or there and do this. I've got big plans. And the second assumption suggests that this is where significance and substance is found. Tomorrow will be better than today because of how these people invest in it. Somehow life will be more substantial and, and, and more significant than it is now because of what these people were setting out to do, setting out to accomplish. Those are the two basic assumptions, but, but such assumptions are fraught with dangers. Hidden perhaps, but dangers nonetheless. Back to verse 16. As it is, you boast and brag about what you are going to do and why. This is James' response. Does it seem a little odd? Certainly confrontational, huh? You boast and brag. And certainly not what these people were wanting to hear. His response, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who, who knows the good he ought, ought to do and doesn't do it sins. What is James suggesting here? Why are such assumptions wrong? 
Such assumptions avoid doing what these people know they ought to be doing with their lives. It puts their goals before their God. Hear that again. It puts their goals before their God. The plans they make essentially leave him out of the story. They haven't asked him what he wants them doing. This is why James calls it a flat-out sin. These believers knew what they ought to be doing, but instead they pushed ahead with their own plans. I don't know about you, but this hits heavy, hard, and it hits real close to home. When we pursue our life our way, we refuse to give God his rightful place. And this is why James labels it a sin. According to James, this sort of basic assumption is faulty from the get-go. And most of all, it's dangerous. But why? What's wrong with seeking a, a better future, a, a better life? What's wrong with having goals? Well, to begin with... Uh, no one is guaranteed tomorrow, especially when the expectations for tomorrow exclude God. And second, significance and substance will never come from such plans as these. James is piercing when he says, verse 14, why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. The fact is the future is not promised to our hopes, our, our aspirations. If we attach ourselves to such things, we could be tragically disappointed and overwhelmingly discouraged. Hopes and aspirations should be sought in the Lord and his plans for our lives. Do you know those who have attached to everything to, to some future assemblage of goals. They, they have plans clearly defined, clearly spelled out, and purposefully initiated. And come what may, they're going to pursue those plans. Don't get in their way. Don't question them about it. They've got plans, and that's what's going to happen. But then things sometimes don't happen the way we think they should, and we're crushed. Our lives are dashed. So people just kind of drag on, miserable hulks sulking through life, abused, angry, disillusioned. Do you know people like this? To some extent, we all have future expectations. We all try to, to, to reach ahead into to some coming event and gain a handle on it. And I don't think this is what James is referring to. I I would think James expects us to have plans. But the people James is speaking to here seek to manipulate the future as they see it for their onions. These goals are more hardened demands at all costs than healthy goals. Nancy Reagan, the former first lady, is a good example. In her book, My Turn, she tries to 
explain why she sought the direction of astrology. Some of you may remember the escapade, some of you may not, but it's a good example anyway. And it's a sad commentary. It was brought about by fear. President Reagan's safety aided her after John Hinckley's failed assassination attempt. When the media found out she was seeking the advice of astrologers, they had a field day. In her book, she attempts to explain it. Regardless of her laborious explanation, she was looking for something she could not have, a guarantee of future events, a, a control of future events. President Reagan's response to the assassination was entirely different. It was a watershed event in his life. He'd been a believer for some time. But this event brought him to the conclusion that his days were not his. They belonged to the Lord. That's quite different, isn't it? And this is exactly what James is talking about here. Paul puts it like this. For we, believers, are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You and I were created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, to do good works. It, it's a huge realization. God has plans for your life. Think that over. God has plans for your life. Have you ever considered this? Consciously and, and deliberately, God has plans for your life. Your days, your efforts, they don't really belong to you. They belong to the Lord. Failing to understand and refusing to follow this arrives, as James says in verse 17, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. That's heavy stuff. I, I don't know about you. I would have never thought of my plans, my dreams, my expectations as sin. Would you? But that's exactly what James says. He gets right up in our faces. Listen, anyone then, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it since. The second of these two assumptions I mentioned earlier concludes that our lives deserve to be more than they are. There is the thought of significance here. Let me ask you, where would such a conclusion come from? Well, it comes from the fact that all these plans are, are self-centered. There is a self-demanding priority at the foundation of these assumptions as James speaks of them here. And tragically, as he furthers all this is evil, And add to this thought, verse 14, 
what is your life. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I entitled this message, The Big Presumption. Perhaps you see why. We think we know so much when in fact we, we have missed so much. We want so much when what we need to want is the Lord in our lives. Woody Allen, the, the great theologian, though you probably know him better as an actor and author and playwright, put it like this. The universe is merely a fleeting idea in God's mind, a pretty uncomfortable thought, particularly if you've just made a down payment on a house. You see why I called him a theologian? You see, he factors God into the situation, right or wrong. He's factoring God into the situation. All of us are basically theologians. We have some assumption about God, what we, we think about him and where he is and who he is and the part he plays and everything. Another pastor was struck by something I said to him one day. He has since mentioned it on more than one occasion. His infant daughter had developed seizures. Things didn't look particularly good. Here was this little girl who had her, her whole life in front of her, but now this ugly obstacle stood in the way. I commented to him, life seems so substantial. We live like it is invincible until something like this shows life for the fragile thing it really is. What a question for James the Clombers with what is your life? And then for him to answer it the way he does. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Do you find that sobering? I do. It knocks the pedestal out from underneath our expectations, doesn't it? Our lives. This is not the premise you and I want from life, is it? No, we think our lives ought to be substantial, consequential, important. Our goal is to, to leave a mark, to, to have an impact, to be remembered. James asks his readers to question such basic assumptions. Why? Because they're wrong. Because they're vain. And because most of all, they are discouraging. They head us down the wrong path. All this could leave you and me in a dilemma. It seems to me like a depressing perspective to have about life. Why then bother with anything? Why plan anything? If this is true, is life even worth living? Why should I bother to invest myself in anything? Any future involvement? Graffiti on the men's room wall at the Laval's Pizzeria in Berkeley, California reads, Life is the interruption of an otherwise peaceful non-existence. 
a character in Camus's Caligula interjects, to lose one's life is, is a little thing. And I will have the courage when necessary. But to see the sense of this life dissipated, to see our reason for existence disappear, that is what is unsupportable. Man cannot live without reason. The author's point, life without reason, without purpose, is non-existence. It's, it's a vapor. It, it's utterly useless. And this is exactly what James is saying here. To exist blindly, hidden behind false assumptions, is empty and without content, utterly purposeless. You want a reason to live. And know this, James wants your life to be full of reason, full of purpose. He wants to give us a reason to live. You and me to have a viable life, a life of consequences, a future life full of fulfillment and satisfaction. Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Everything pivots on that word instead. Instead offers an alternative understanding, a contrasting biblical perspective to the assumptions so boastfully advanced by the people James is addressing here. Folks, this is a good message for us today, isn't it? It's an important message for us today. And it's all that much more important given the situation we find ourselves. It was important back then. But little has changed in 2,000 years. What James has just described is still the core problem in our lives today. They wanted their will, not his. Oh yes, they wanted to be religious. But they still wanted their future their way, not his. Not his future, not his way. Let me paraphrase Shakespeare. To will or not to will, that is the question. Whose will drives your life? Your will or his will? James is not saying don't work. He's not saying don't aspire. He's not saying don't have expectations for your future. But it's where you find your purpose in life that's the point. That's the rub. That's what we're talking about. Where do you find the reason for life? Tolstoy, the Russian literary genius, wrestled with this exact question for years. He grappled with the rhyme and reason for life. Tolstoy was a thoughtful man. He, he just doesn't take things at face value. He was, he was a deep thinker. For years, he searched for an adequate answer to the question, what is the purpose of life? He addressed it to his contemporaries. And, and know this, 
he hobnobbed with some of the great minds of his day. But no one could give him a satisfactory answer. None of the philosophers, none of the notables, none of the thinkers of his day, none of the educated could answer his question, what is the reason for life? Then one day he saw an old peasant friend who upon listening to Tolstoy's question immediately replied to serve God. Tolstoy was struck by the simplicity and absolute clarity of the answer. He thought it through and later Tolstoy declared it to be the, the highest wisdom he had ever encountered, to serve God. Yes, that is exactly what verse 15 says. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. How contrary all this is to the way of the world. Philosophies abound, uh, uh, assumptions multiply minute by minute. Fact is, everybody has some take on what they think life is all about. Some of us are more intuitive than others. Some are more thoughtful. Some of us a little bit humorous. But all of us have an idea as to what we want out of life, what we, we think life ought to be all about. James taps his readers on the shoulder and he says life is not deciphered in knowing the when of life or the where of life or the what of life. It's only deciphered in knowing the who of life. Life finds direction and substance when we look to God. When we commit ourselves to, to his purpose, to his goal, and to his direction on what we're doing in our lives now. Why? Because the world, the flesh, and the devil tell us to be our own person and to seek our own thing. That's where happiness and, and fulfillment is found according to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Folks, James, inspired by God's hand, is telling us something different today. He says future significance finds itself only in God's will today. Future significance finds itself only in God's will today. It's that simple. A young man sat in the office of his pastor. His, his face exposed the trouble he had seen. He had been describing the story of an, of an unhappy, frustrated, mixed-up life. I, I just can't understand why life always turns out wrong for me, he told the pastor. All I want was, and then he listed a number of things, none of which were really inappropriate or wrong, except for the fact that they excluded the Lord. 
He concluded, I can't figure out why my life is so messed up. This isn't true for everyone else. Why me? Trying to help him understand, the pastor said, think of it like this. You've bought a new car. You have a sense of pride as you, you listen to the smooth purr of the motor. The finish is beautiful, lots of power and comfort. Then with a bit of curiosity, you pull from the glove compartment the operating manual written by the maker. It contains suggestions and, and rules for the care of your car. But you say to yourself, hey, this is my car. No one's going to tell me how to run it. I'll, I'll do what I like with it. The young man sat there as the impact of what he had just heard began to sink in. The pastor went on. Does it seem strange that your life has turned out this way? God, your creator and designer, has given you his manual of operation. And God has given you his power in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he wants you to get the most mileage out of your life. Folks, what about us, you and me? Are we getting the most mileage out of life? Or are we just spinning our wheels as we, we try to live life our way? Future significance finds itself only in God's will today. Has someone tapped you on the shoulder this morning? Out with me. Father, I pray you will tap, tap, tap away until we listen. You want to bless us, but, but so often we live outside the boundaries of your blessings. We, we seek life our way, our plans, our hopes, our expectations. And you're left out of it all. Not that our plans are necessarily wrong, unless that is, unless they've excluded you from them. I pray this morning for your hand on each of our lives, your direction in each of our lives, your blessing to overcome us so that we will turn to you and that we will put you at the head of our lives, Father. And Father, this I pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ, who, who makes all things possible, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again.